This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Karim Yassar, Assistant Professor of East Asian Languages and Cultures at the University of Southern California. Dr. Yassar is the author of Electrified Voices, How the Telephone, Phonograph, and Radio Shaped Modern Japan, 1868 to 1945 published by Columbia University Press in 2018. Dr. Yassar, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. I'm happy to uh, talk a little bit about my research. Speaking of your research, you just published this book, Electrified Voices, How the Telephone, Phonograph, and Radio Shaped Modern Japan, 1868 to 1945. And so often when we think of the Meiji period, you know, we think about Japanese modernization, and it's usually in terms of political structures and institutions, technologies. But how does this picture of Meiji Japan sound different when we start to listen to these electrified voices? Well, I think there are a number of things that happen. I mean, first of all, you have the introduction of technologies of auditory reproduction and transmission. And then later, I mean, this is a post-Meiji development, but then you have the ability to broadcast sound. So you have that, but you also have the changing soundscapes. I mean, this is maybe a term that your listeners are familiar with. It's the changing sounds of urban Japan in particular, although a lot of those changes then trickle down to the less urban areas, to the sort of exurban or rural areas. So you have the changes that are wrought by the introduction of technologies that make sound. You know, you have the the train eventually the automobile and a great deal of machinery that's used in industrial production. But then you also have these technologies that record sound and then reproduce sound. And then those reproduced sounds also become a part of that soundscape. And my book focuses much more on the technologies of reproduction, of transmission, and not so much on the other elements that change in the soundscape. Although I do talk about those a little bit, and they are also, I think, an important part of the story of how Meiji Japan sounded. Can you elaborate a bit on these technologies? When do they come in? How are they changing the soundscapes of Japan? Well, so they come in in a staggered fashion. The first one to come in is the telegraph, which I consider a proto-auditory technology. I mean, it's not a technology of sound reproduction, but it is, um, I mean, it does use sound and it does pave the way for the telephone that would follow. And that goes into use around 1869, but the Japanese were familiar. They knew about the telegraph before then. Commodore Perry brought one. And in fact, even before Perry, a person by the name of Sakuma Shozan actually built a prototype from plans that he had all the way back in 1849. But it's really only in 1869 that the first telegraph line is built, and that's between Tokyo and Yokohama. And then that network is expanded throughout the archipelago. And it's really no coincidence that the expansion of the network basically follows the path that the Meiji emperor is, is taking in his sort of tour of the country. So that happens in the late 1860s, early 1870s, the network expands, and then you get the telephone appearing in the late 1870s. 1878 is the first domestically produced telephone, although you do have models that are brought over and sort of demonstrated before then. And then also in the late 1870s, you have the first demonstrations of the phonograph, for whatever reason, the phonograph was a little bit slower to be adopted and to disseminate throughout the country. But 
you have the first demonstration in 1879, and then you have some other demonstrations that happen a full decade later. But it doesn't really become a common part of people's lives until you get to the 20th century, and then you get the appearance uh, not of the phonograph, but of the gramophone discs. And those in the first decade of the 20th century, they become commodities that certain homes do begin to acquire, although they are quite expensive. So the part of the story that takes place in the Meiji period basically is this sort of staggered introduction from about 1869 to, let's say, the first decade of the 20th century. And then the next technology that I consider is the radio, but that doesn't really appear until the 1920s. I'm reminded of these speeches by some of the Meiji oligarchs talking about all of the great advances Japan's made in material civilization. And they point to the construction of telegraph lines, uh, along with railways and lighthouses. These as kind of monuments of Japanese tangible progress. But but we can also talk about the conceptual benefits of these as well, in, in the sense of bringing together this people in some imagined community. And so what were some of the impacts of these technologies on daily lives of Japanese people during the Meiji period? Well, in terms of people's daily lives, the telegraph, of course, becomes a means of very rapid communication across much larger distances than could have been covered, for example, by mail delivery, which was also kind of innovation, I guess you could say, of of the Meiji period. But it did remain relatively expensive until you get into the 20th century. And so it was something that was in the very early days, it was limited to official communication. But then once you do get into the 1890s and the early 20th century, then you do have it being used more and more by common people. But again, it is something that is limited to special circumstances in most cases. So for example, say the death of a loved one or the illness of a loved one. I mean, you see this very clearly in uh, Natsume Soseki's Kokoro, which is from the 1910s, but much of what happens, many of the sort of plot points in that narrative revolve around the the sending and the receiving of telegrams having to do with illness and then with having to travel uh, in order to be with a loved one. And so that sense of this kind of instantaneous communication in cases of emergency is made very vivid in that book. And it's, it's really a kind of, the, I mean, the telegraph is practically a, a character in the novel. But then, of course, in the same period, you have a lot of businesses who are using telegrams. And you also have at that same time also the increasing adoption and use of the telephone. And Soseki was also somebody who was one of the first adopters of the telephone in that when he was working for the Asahi Shimbun, the newspaper basically provided him uh, with a telephone. And so he actually, there are numerous references to that in his diaries. He liked the convenience of the telephone in terms of making phone calls, but apparently he really didn't like receiving them. And often would sort of leave the leave the phone off the hook so people couldn't bother him and you know sort of interrupt his his concentration and one of the things that i talk about in the book is you know how the telephone was a kind of convenience but it was also a nuisance in many respects and so you know he was a good example of someone who was very sensitive to sound really hated noise even though he had the telephone and liked the convenience of being able to call people he didn't like receiving calls I was thinking also of Makiko's diary, this uh, diary of a Kyoto woman in 1910. She comments on the introduction of the telephone and, and how much of the family business was being done over the telephone. 
I noticed on, on your cover, you have this beautiful cover of the book with a woman on the telephone. Was there a kind of gendered aspect of the telephone? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, there was a gendered aspect in terms of who became telephone operators. In the early days of the telephone, the telephone operators were both men and women, actually. And it was it was a surprisingly, I mean, maybe not so surprisingly, but it was a physically very demanding job because you had to operate these huge switchboards and you had to sort of get up and sit down and get up and sit down. And operators were expected to handle a really high volume of calls. And so it was actually a very physically taxing job. And in the beginning, you had both men and women doing it, but the users of the telephone service were not so happy with the male operators for a number of reasons. I mean, the users of the telephone themselves tended to be male, tended to be men predominantly. And, you know, so one of the things that I talk about in the book is how female operators were, in a sense, they were doing a kind of emotional labor. They were trying to create a sort of pleasant experience, affectively speaking, for the users of the telephone. And the male operators tended to be less polite, a little more gruff. And whereas the female operators, they would answer by saying moshi moshi, which is the, the way that people actually answer the phone today, even today in Japan. But the male operators at the time, they would say oi oi, which is a good deal more. <laughs> um, for those of you who know Japanese, is a good deal less polite. So that was one reason. The users of the telephone, who, to reiterate, they were mainly men, didn't like having to deal with the male operators for whatever reason. But also because, I mean, if you think about the materiality of the technology itself, in those early days, the frequencies that tended to travel better over the phone line were the higher frequencies, not the lower frequencies. And so female voices, in terms of the technology of the day, female voices traveled more clearly. And so that was another reason why men were, you know, kind of filtered out of the profession. And then telephone operation became almost an exclusively a job for women. So far, we've talked about the informative aspects of these new technologies, telegraphs, telephones, spreading information. What about the more performative aspect of uh, music? Can you talk about the phonograph, how this changes the production of music, the distribution of music? Sure. More than the phonograph, really the gramophone, it's really when the, the disc format appears that this really becomes a valuable commodity and it starts having real consequences for the performing arts. And one of the performing arts that is one of the first to become popular or, or a best-selling performing art in terms of the gramophone, the record sales, is Naniwabushi. You have popular song as well. I mean, in those days, you have the 78 RPM SP gramophone records, and they're only really about three minutes per side. And so that has certain, I think, consequences in terms of the types of performing arts that become popular. Although, I mean, in the case of Naniwabushi, it's a little bit counterintuitive because those are, you know, sort of longer drawn out narratives, but it didn't seem to dampen the popularity. But what winds up happening is that the Naniwabushi artists who up until that point had been Yosei Entertainment. Yosei are these kinds of variety entertainment halls, or I mean, some people call them vaudeville halls, although that's a little bit a little bit misleading, but let's just say kind of variety entertainment halls. I mean, Naniwabushi had been 
a kind of entertainment for the common person. The tales tended to be, you know, sort of melodramatic, but also very sort of nationalistic, patriotic. And, you know, so the, the, the most famous performers, you know, were quite famous before the arrival of the gramophone recordings of their performances. But then once they started recording these things, then their stardom, their star power just really exploded. And so there was this real synergy between Nani Wabushi and the early gramophone recordings. I mean, in terms of domestic content, there was foreign content that was also being brought in on these gramophone recordings. I mean, Western classical music. And then in terms of the domestic content, there was, of course, traditional, other traditional entertainments, biwa and things like this. But Naniwabushi was was really the performing art that seemed to have the the greatest sort of synergy with gramophone recordings and and were the best sellers. There is one specific performer, Tochuken Kumoemon, who was probably the most famous Naniwabushi artist of the day. I mean, he produced a, a number of different recordings. And these recordings, I mean, the, the, they were, melodically, they were improvised, although the, the stories were, you know, sort of set, but melodically they were improvised. But there was a very interesting case with this Tochuken Kumoemon. One of the things that was interesting about the gramophone industry in those days was that there were no specific legal protections, copyright protections of these recordings. And so what you had was that you had basically a pirate industry that was operating out in the open on a really industrial scale, taking one record company's recordings, making pirated copies of them, and then selling them at a lower price to undercut the original prices. And you know, so this made for a kind of Wild West atmosphere in, in terms of the recording industry during the time. And Tochuken was sort of embroiled in this case in which he signed a, an agreement to make a recording for one record company, which was run by a man named Richard Richard Werderman. He was a German entrepreneur. So he made this agreement to record for him. He did the recording, but then a record company pirated this recording. And then on top of that, Tochuken actually then uh, turned around and then did another recording with another record company in violation of this exclusivity contract. And so this became one of the, the best known copyright cases, actually, in Japanese legal history. And I spend a good amount of one chapter of the book actually sort of going over this case and the legal arguments that were made. Eventually, the case, well, in one court, it was decided in favor of this German entrepreneur, but then the case was appealed and then it went to the Supreme Court of Japan, where the Supreme Court basically decided that the recording was not protected. And so the pirates were basically free to do whatever they wanted to do until there was legislation that was passed in the diet that then very explicitly protected recordings. And then another technology you focus on in the book is the radio. And when we think of radio in Japan, of course, and we, th we think of Emperor Hirohito's surrender broadcast in 1945, but even before that, there was another moment in 1928 
the enthronement ceremony of Hirohito, where this enthronement ceremony gets broadcast all over the empire on the radio. And so there is this link between emerging imperialism and the radio. Could you expand on that and unpack that a bit for us? Indeed, yes. The radio becomes very quickly a tool of a certain kind of national ideology, state ideology. In the early days when the, you know, the Ministry of Communications and and the, the sort of governmental authorities in Japan, in the very beginning, they actually contemplated having a kind of model of commercial radio, uh, not unlike what was in the United States at the time. But then what wound up happening was that, you know, they started soliciting applications for broadcast licenses. And there was just a crush of applicants. There there were too many different parties who were interested in starting radio stations. And so the whole thing just seemed a little bit unwieldy and too difficult to control. And so what wound up happening is that the Ministry of Communications decided, okay, we'll just have one station a kind of semi-autonomous, but also very carefully censored radio station in each major city. So first, we have J-O-A-K in Tokyo. J-O-B-K in Osaka, and J-O-C-K, my favorite acronym, JOC, in Nagoya. And so that kind of, you know, semi-autonomous, you know, these independent radio stations, that system stayed in effect for about, I'd say about a year and a half. But then even that was a little bit too, you know, kind of unpredictable or, you know, sort of out of out of the control of the authorities for their comfort. And so what they essentially did was they then consolidated the stations. It wasn't just, I, I, I don't think it was just those three at the time. I think there might have been a few others, but basically all of those stations were consolidated into the Nippon Hoso Kyokai or NHK, which we still know the, the acronym for and still use the acronym for. And the management of those separate radio stations was all basically replaced by appointees of the of the Ministry of Communication. So from a very early period, I mean in the very earliest period, they had this, I suppose you could say, liberal and, you know, sort of commercial, private conception of what radio might be, but it didn't take them long for them to then step back to a more limited, just sort of one station per city, and then to and then to step back even further and consolidate that into NHK. And so I think what that suggests is that the authorities understood full well the power of broadcasting as a medium, both for the reinforcement, I guess you could say, of a state ideology, of a national ideology, but also as potentially subversive if you don't clamp down. And so that's what they did. The broadcasting was very carefully censored. And then after things like, you know, the Manchurian incident, I mean, that was a major catalyst for a lot of people, the, I mean, the first broadcast be- began in 1924, which was a bit later than other countries of similar economic levels of development, um, certainly later than the United States, later than Great Britain. And part of the reason for that was because of the Great Contour earthquake in 1923 
it did a lot of damage to the infrastructure in Tokyo. And so the first priority, understandably, was rebuilding Tokyo rather than starting broadcasting. But then in 1924, eventually broadcasting does begin. Um, but again, it's another case of the in the early days of the technology, the radios themselves are are quite expensive. So it's really only upper class, maybe upper middle class homes at best that can afford them. But then when you get to 1932, 1933, you have events that trigger a rush for many more households to buy these things. And then, you know, the, the more homes that they enter, the, the, the farther they reach in terms of their ideological and propaganda potential and power. You know, that's really what they're used for, especially as the war in Asia on the continent as that sort of intensifies. And then as militarism becomes the reality of Japanese political life in the 1930s. When I lecture on the Japanese propaganda songs and ballads, it's kind of funny that, you know, some of them are very catchy. Uh, <laughs> were, were there any of these songs or other types of radio shows? Manzai comedy, I imagine, was was being broadcast. Was there anything from that time period that you kind of found yourself almost getting hooked on? Well, very little actually survives in the form of a recording from that period because you have a lot of live programming. You have a lot of narrative programming. Um, radio drama becomes very popular. And these radio dramas are performed live. And there are very few recordings that survive. Particularly, I mean, from this period of the 1920s, you really only start seeing a lot of recordings of, of radio programming in the post-war period with the introduction of magnetic tape. And then it becomes much easier to record, you know, basically everything that gets broadcast, although, you know, not all of those recordings are preserved. But in this early period, there are very few recordings that survive. And so what I had to do in order to sort of put together a picture of what was being broadcast was really to look at written records of what was broadcast. But there are some recordings that survived. And then, of course, some of what was played on the radio were you know, were recordings, so you can listen to the recordings that were played on the radio. But uh, particularly in, in these early days, it was very, it was hard to get a, a good broadcast, a good, you know, to get good sound quality, a strong signal from playing a gramophone record on the radio. And so uh, uh, most of the programming tended to be live programming of one kind or another. But yeah, narrative, anything narrative related was very popular, actually more popular than music. Which, you know, might be a little bit surprising because we tend to think today of the radio being, you know, it's a medium for music and it's a medium for news and talk. But, you know, in the 1920s, of course, there was music. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that it was absent from the radio, which would be a little bit weird considering that it is an auditory medium. But, but narrative, different kinds of, and all kinds of narrative forms were, were very popular, including things like just like reading the script of a, of a film, you know, so instead of watching the film, you listen to actors, you know, reading the script or listening to Benshi, the narrators of silent cinema in Japan, you know, listening to Benshi deliver their narration for films uh, over the radio. So you're just listening to them. You're not actually watching the film as you're listening, but you're, you know, you take pleasure in the performances of the Benshi, even without the accompanying image. 
And speaking of that, I know cinema is also another one of your research and teaching focuses. So how does the emergence of talkie films play into this story? Well, the emergence of talkie films, there's a, a great deal of overlap with radio because a lot of the techniques and technologies that were developed for radio uh, and the forms of expertise that were developed for radio then transfer into early talkies. So I mentioned radio drama. You have a really impressive kind of repertoire of sound effects that get developed for radio drama. And of course, you know, recording techniques, recording technologies, but the sound effects are one thing that, you know, really kind of take off in the age of radio to be used for radio drama. Because if you think about radio drama, I mean, you really only have two sort of means, expressive means at your disposal with radio drama. You have voices, dialogue, and then you have sound effects, which sort of create the space, the environment in which the the narratives unfold. And so given that, you know, if you don't just want to listen to people talking, if you want to have some sense of space, of atmosphere, of location, of time and, and everything else, then then you've got to find ways to convey that purely through the through the medium of sound. And so you have this incredible kind of efflorescence of creativity with sound effects. And then those things transfer into talkie cinema. I mean, particularly things like animation, but but there is also some transfer into live action. Can you explain the first talkie a bit? It's it's hard to pin down the very first talkie of all in Japan was, but the, the generally there's a consensus that the first successful talkie that got actual release, that would be Madame Tunyobo, directed by Gosho Heinosuke and released in 1931. the title of which is often usually translated as The Neighbor's Wife and Mine. And this is a film that was made by the Shochiku studio. And it's very conscious of itself as a talkie. I guess you could also say it's conscious of itself as the first commercial studio release talkie in that sound plays a role in the narrative. It's about a, a, a writer who is trying to meet a deadline. And so he moves out to the suburbs and kind of tries to hold himself up. He's got to meet this deadline. But then he has this neighbor who is making a lot of noise and brings like, you know, jazz bands into <laughs> into her home and they're, you know, they're playing all this music. So this this whole idea of sound and silence and concentration and, I mean, basically sound as a topic is, is very consciously deployed in that film. So looking at the kind of big picture, how can we say that these new technologies transform Japanese soundscape? I think there were a couple of major impacts that these technologies had in the Meiji period. One of the most important, I think, and this is what I talk about in the first chapter of the book, is that both the telegraph and the telephone did a lot to shift the balance between orality and textuality. 
And I argue in the book that this had a very important influence. It wasn't the only it wasn't the only factor, but it was a contributing factor to the language reform movements of the Meiji period. One of the things that I argue in the book is that the introduction of the telephone and the telegraph created a new heightened sense of orality in terms of this balance between orality and textuality, and that that sort of reassessment or revaluing of the oral dimensions of language was a contributing factor towards the Gambun Ichi movement, towards the movement to bring the written language closer to the spoken language. In terms of making that argument, I'm kind of in dialogue with Karatani Kojin, who argues in the origins of modern Japanese literature that that sort of movement towards bringing the written language closer to the spoken language, he argues that that is the influence of a kind of Western phonocentrism that comes into Japan and emphasizes this, this more sort of phonocentric disposition towards language. And I have to say, I disagree with Karatani in that I show instances of a certain kind of orientation towards orality and, and you could say a kind of pre-modern phonocentrism in Japan in the Edo period and before, but also that these technologies themselves, I mean, they are, of course, Western imports, but it, it is the materiality of the technologies themselves that then bring orality, a kind of technologized orality, to the fore and create a sense that, okay, spoken language has a certain kind of technological glamour. I mean, one example I think that illustrates this is if you look at the difference between how the telegraph was used in Japan and how it was used in China. In Japan, users of the telegraph were able to use the kana syllabic alphabet to send messages. And kana is a, basically it is a phonetic form of writing, of representation of spoken language. In China, what had to be done was that each of the characters had to be given a code. And so when a telegraph was sent, the message, the, the graphs had to be encoded sent in this code, and then at the receiving end, they had to be decoded. So when you sort of look at that juxtaposition of graphs, which have to go through this laborious encoding and decoding process versus the kana, which are phonetic, it sort of creates the impression that, that a sort of phonetic system of writing is something that's very much in line with this new modernity, with these new technologies. And, you know, and so that I think was, was an important piece of the puzzle of why Japanese elites, intellectuals were disposed towards this, this kind of language reform, particularly when it came to written Japanese. So that's, I think, one of the major things. But then in terms of the soundscapes themselves, you have a lot of new sounds that are coming into Japan in terms of recordings from foreign cultures, recordings of Western music. And of course, Western music was entering Japan through various other channels as well. In fact, the musical education in Japan really kind of was stripped of its, of its traditional Japanese elements and really became rooted in you know, Western scales and Western musical forms. So you have that, but you also have 
this Western music that's coming in. And I think that is also another major transformation of the soundscape, in particular of the sounds that people are hearing on a daily basis. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.